Hi, everybody. My name is Tony and Marcolini. Welcome to the podcast. It may interest you to know. Uh, today, I'm very lucky to have with me uh, a uh, child advocate, Chris Perry, uh, who you're going to know from uh, a very uh, open legal battle at the Supreme Court level, which I, I think we're going to touch upon briefly. But uh, first, let me start by saying welcome, Chris. Hey, thanks. Nice to be here. Now, I mean, I want to talk about all the, the, the science and the good work that you're doing now, uh, but I think I'd be remiss, especially on this week, not to at least touch upon uh, your, uh, your history with the LGBTQ movement in this country, right, uh, in terms of marriage equality. Of course, you're from the very famous Supreme Court case, uh, uh, Hollingsworth, right? Hollingsworth versus Perry. Mm -hmm. uh, and just my own edification, because I am a lawyer too. What was it like to be standing on the steps of the Supreme Court poised to change uh, legal history? Well, an incredibly exciting and um, humbling experience, actually, because uh, I don't know, probably many people have seen pictures of the Supreme Court, imagine what it would be like to go inside the Supreme Court, thought about Supreme Court justices, just like everybody else, I had those same ideas and I and, and I was curious, but to actually be in, in a situation where I was part of a group that sued the state of California to strike down a law that um, discriminated against same-sex couples that traveled all the way to the Supreme Court was, was incredibly interesting, but also very humbling. We were fortunate. It was almost 10 years ago now to, to win at this United States Supreme Court. And here, just 10 years later, it's really historic that the United States Congress has sent uh, the Respect for Marriage Act to the White House for signature, which should happen tomorrow, and um, forever codifying that, that win and a number of other wins for the people of the United States so we can experience this sense of equality and fairness in our lives. It's really been terrific. It's been amazing. And you're actually, I think, going to be able to uh, be at the signing. Is that right? Yes. In fact, my wife and I and our four sons will be at the White House tomorrow for the presidential bill signing. And, you know, when we started out, our youngest were eighth grade um, and they're now 28. And that that's how long it takes to make change of this impact, of this magnitude, um, which something we'll talk about later when we talk a little bit about how we protect children. But in a way, the way we, we always thought about the marriage equality fight is one that was to protect children and families, to let kids grow up with the sense of um, fairness and equality that comes from having parents that can be married and, and be held out and, and treated equally in their communities. Um, that's just something that was always important to us as parents. And I, and I look forward to seeing all the parents and families that are going to be married after this enjoy those same, that same freedom. When the law initially changed, actually, you you were married by uh, Vice President Harris. Is that right? Well, she wasn't yes. Vice President then, but you no. guys actually married you. <laughs> she was the California Attorney General at the time. And we were incredibly fortunate that that day that the United States Supreme Court struck down our, you know, the Proposition 8 in California. Well, actually, a couple of days later, when the stay was lifted, which had been in place for many years, because we actually had won in 2010 after a trial in federal court. But over the number of years, it took many years for those appeals to run their course through the Supreme Court. And then when they finally lifted this day, we reached out to see if by chance she was in the San Francisco area because we wanted to be married at San Francisco City Hall. And sure enough, she was just down the street at the, at the state building and she came running across 
um, the courtyard in front of City Hall and married us that afternoon. We were the first couple married in California after that ruling. It was it was incredible. I, I still look back at that day and I just smile from ear to ear at how fortunate we were in every way. Well, I think it took, and I want to have this opportunity to tell you, and I'm glad I had the opportunity to tell you, I think it takes enormous bravery, uh, right, to be to be at the center of any storm, uh, right, and try to and try to lead. Um, so I think it took an, a, a lot of bravery to uh, to be the voice and the visual, uh, you know, for for that moment in time, right? To lead that to to be the the plaintiff uh, in that case, or among the the plaintiffs in that case. You certainly, arguably, were the lead plaintiffs in the case. Uh, you're the ones that most people knew about, or the story that most people followed uh, in on their in their daily news. Um, so. I think that takes great bravery. So I do want that opportunity to say that. Thank you. It was um, it was an it, it was a very unexpected um, experience in the sense that when we first filed the case, they told us it would be handled mainly through briefs between lawyers and judges, and we and we believe that because that's how every other marriage case had unfolded. And then suddenly, at the beginning of that process, the judge said he wanted it to go to trial which did lead to a much more high profile, visible role in the fight. And by the way, this is a decades long fight that started, honestly, you could trace it all the way back to Stonewall or Harvey Milk and say there were people fighting for equality in the 70s, the 60s, the 50s. And we were so fortunate 50, 60 years later to be in a situation where one of the pieces of our equality was being fought in court and to be able to be one of the faces that could help advance that cause was an honor and it still feels like the greatest honor to be included in any fight that brings more equality and fairness to our country um, it's an, an incredibly american value to allow us to all have the freedom and the possibility to pursue happiness so i feel like that was you know a, a fortunate a fortunate experience for us and one that our children um have been greatly impacted by and i think many children have been impacted by yeah. Uh, and again, the kind of the cult, the culmination of a journey that started, you know, a while ago, uh, you're part of this moment in history, right? Forever, you'll be part of this moment in history. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. I, it's very, it, I'm, it's very moving to me. Um, and it's, and I learned so much about the, 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 what it takes to make big, make big change in this country, what it takes to move Congress, what it takes to move the courts, what it takes to protect children and adults from um, from some from unfairness. It, it takes huge groundswell and great public demand and great public will to get something as, as if you think about how unpopular something like same-sex marriage was just 20 years ago to go from that moment to this one where 70% of Americans are supportive and the majority of the members of Congress are supportive. I mean, that's really rapid change, but it can't, it comes from the people. Uh, wanting that change. Fair enough. Yes. Um, and you have a book out too, uh, uh, Love on Trial, uh, yep. which really chronicles your journey, uh, your and your wife's journey uh, mm -hmm. throughout the process. So that's, yeah. that's out there. Uh, now, we're really here to talk today about the your new role uh, as an executive director. Uh, but can you tell us a little bit, you had done some work before we get to that, you had done some work for Governor Gavin Newsom, uh, and you'd been a senior advisor uh, with some of the initiatives to protecting children. Could you speak about that a little bit? 
Well, I'm glad we were talking about the governor for just a moment because he too made a major contribution to the marriage equality fight in 2004 when he was mayor of San Francisco. He opened the doors of City Hall and he told couples they could come and be married there. And that kind of set off a chain of events around marriage equality in California. Then he became governor many years later, and I was in a, a role in, in leading early childhood efforts at that time and joined his administration. And together, we worked really hard to create um, universal pre-K in California. That's a that, that, that we accomplished. We created a master plan for early learning and care, and a number of other supports and programs were put in place to support primarily parents living in poverty or low-income families that just don't have the resources always to provide their children with all of the great advantages that they need to be successful in school and in life. And so together, we really did move the needle on early education, early healthcare, um, community support. So it's really proud of what we accomplished together in, in, during those years. Sure. And, and that, I mean, I think that ultimately uh, leads you to where you are now, um, right? That you've just, you're just taking over this new role. Um, I think the the focus is on the digital impact, I believe. And I again, you tell me if I'm wrong, but I believe the focus uh, of uh, will be like the digital impact, right, uh, on, on children of how the world has kind of evolved and our children are absorbing everything digitally, uh, whereas, you know, it used to be different. You know, you, you ran outside, you played in the yard, uh, right? But everything now is got a screen. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, even and right now, that, you and I are on a screen, yes. <laughs> absolutely, right. And how does that impact uh, children and, and their brains and their emotional development? I think a lot of your research and your work uh, at your, in your new role is going towards that. But you t please, you tell me about your new role. Well, I am so excited to be at Children and Screens, the, the Institute of Child Development and Digital Media, because... As you, as you just pointed out, um, screens have become ubiquitous in society. They, they're here to stay. We all have digital lives um, and we are conducting everything from education to healthcare to um, recreation. You know, and to, almost everything that we've done is you do on, online now. Um, the one distinction that I think is that we haven't designed these products for children. They haven't necessarily been protected from some of the artificial intelligence and other persuasive design that the tech companies have used to bring adults into their fold. And as somebody who's cared deeply about child development and children having their optimal an optimal childhood, um, it's been really, really note noteworthy to me that we really feel like we're at a at a watershed moment post COVID, where children were essentially isolated for years. Um, they became more dependent on screens for their for their social lives, for their family life, for their education. And as, as we move forward, are, are we going to try and, and create more balance? Are we going to try to figure out a way to, to make sure they're safe and protected, their identities, their, their, their data, in ways that ensure that they have a healthy, you know, healthy childhood and, and that their interaction with digital media is positive and meaningful and not harmful? Can we talk about the science behind uh, behind some of what's happening, and what what is the science behind the impact to child development? 
Yeah, I mean, the, the evidence is pretty clear that screen use in infancy and early childhood is not beneficial and potentially harmful. There are general recommendations, in fact, that you shouldn't really have your children using screens at all, um, maybe with the exception of chatting with family members for a few minutes under the ages, like really under the age of two. But as they get older, um, we are seeing that there can be, you know, it, it can be okay for a little bit of screen time each day. But what, what happens when it's too much is that there can be negative impacts on language development, on executive function skills, which some people think of as managing your emotions or, you know, having more inhibitions. And, and attention. And there really is other evidence that shows that sometimes it can impact the way children learn or, you know, um, that they're even becoming more emotionally um, upset or disrupted by the content of what's on their, on their screen, on the digital media. And then, frankly, as children get older and they're interacting more and more with these products, we've seen everything from attention dis disorders or challenges and concentration challenges to symptoms of ADHD, to conduct problems. I mean, the research is really showing more and more that the more children are online, the weaker their inhibition and impulse control skills are, and um, maybe even less cognitive flexibility. So we're, we're really at an early stage. I mean, there are hundreds of researchers around the world looking at different aspects of child development and the impact of digital media on that aspect of development. But broadly speaking, what we're able to observe right now is that it's really impacting children's emotional well-being and may not be helping them very much with their cognitive development, which is often held out as a reason for children to be on a screen. So we have lots of research to do still to understand the great impact um, and potential positive impacts um, to children who use digital media. What is the uh, the current plan? I mean, what do you you know what what do you have in place, or what kind of plan are you working on uh, in this regard? Well, children and screens. I mean, with children and screens, I assume there's a. Uh, something in place or something you're working towards in, in light of this research. Could you speak to that at all? Yes. Um, there are a number of research um, projects underway. One that comes to mind is what is a something we call the MIST study, which is in, it really convening dozens of experts from around the world to look at um, how to provide a toolkit or um, resources to clinicians, whether they're pediatricians, psychologists, or psychiatrists who are in practice right now and seeing children right now who are presenting with some symptoms that are somewhat novel that they ne haven't necessarily seen exactly in this way to help them determine if digital media has played a part in what the child is experiencing. The child's reporting anxiety or depression, for example, or worse. It helped, we're, we're trying to create that toolkit so that, that clinicians have more resources, more knowledge, more of an understanding of how digital media interacts with the brain and can help lead the child to present in these, these really challenging ways, as well as how you might treat those behaviors. So that's a really tangible example of something we're doing, which these take many years and quite a few resources to, to accomplish, but we've done it before when we've seen something emerge and it has to be addressed as, you know, societally, we have to look at what the, what the approach could be. That's one example. Um, and we also study 
We've also been looking a little bit at um, the impact on the brain itself and how it's developing. Um, we've contributed to research that's coming out soon that will show us just organically, physically, what changes to the brain may be occurring as a result of, of extreme digital media use. Um, really? So I learn. mean, so there's a, there's a chance that there's an impact literally on the mechanics of the brain comparatively mm -hmm. to a child who grows up without digital exposure to one who's maybe uh, got too much digital exposure. Exactly. I mean, in this case, we're, when I use the word extreme, I meant like we're in cases where children have are on, let's say, they're on a device or devices, because we know there are, you, there, there, there are many devices in homes, everything from televisions to tablets to phones to computers. And so the, to, the totality of those devices, you know, can add up to 10, 12, 15 hours of screen time per day. And yes, in the in cases where there are, you know, and there's an sort of extreme exposure there, we're looking forward to seeing these results that are coming out very soon that will show whether or not there's an impact to the actual structure of the brain. We also know from um, um, MRIs and some other studies that have been conducted that there are certainly different activity levels in the brain while on a screen that are that um, are are interesting. There have been comparisons between a child that's um, say interacting with a screen and and is in an MRI versus is interacting with their mom or or, or a caregiver and the different parts of the brain that fire and light up um, as when they're interacting with another person as say uh, interacting with a screen as you might imagine um, more parts of the brain are firing and lit up when they're interacting with a person than they are with a screen um, so we know we know enough right now to understand. And we, we know enough right now to know we don't know enough to have children on screens this much. And we'll get to this next. There's the sort of immediate observable, you know, impacts to children. But behind the scenes, sort of quietly without us knowing, their data and their information is being moved around also. And so we have this sort of front end concern about the immediate impacts, but also what's going on behind the scenes and, and as an as just one person who worries about my privacy and my you know I if I'm being protected I I'm an adult um it, with children I think we should all be very concerned that that their digital footprint is not protected are there things that parents can do uh that you recommend to uh get ahead of that with their children yep yeah, it, it, I really appreciate that question because while we're trying to hammer out some of these big policy matters about child protection or privacy, which could take a long time, there are many things parents can do. I mentioned up front that when you have a very young child, try and minimize to the greatest extent possible their exposure to screens. But as they get older, that becomes increasingly difficult or, or unnecessary, honestly. You you know, they, they do... They, they conduct much of their social life um, online at this point through apps and other social media, text, et cetera. It really becomes a conversation as early as possible about what it means to be online. And other, some people call it digital literacy or media literacy. So your child is building their vocabulary and their understanding of what it means to be online. 
and they're doing that at age appropriate levels. So you're 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 helping them understand as they get older what the risks and the benefits are. And that conversation, if you have multiple children, you know, in different ages, you're gonna you're you're kind of going to have to have this conversation for years, for years and years, because this is an evolving space. New products are coming out every day. Sometimes they're sometimes it's obvious that they're not great. Some it's not so obvious. And you have to just keep the conversation going. And you have to do things too that like really are about, um, you know, classic parenting is like setting boundaries or setting limits on things that you know you shouldn't have too much of. Um, this has been true with sugary foods and sleep and all kinds of things we know are healthy things to, you know, we want to maximize what we know is healthy. We want to minimize what we know isn't necessarily healthy. We can't eliminate completely dig someone's digital life, quite the opposite. It's like, how do you have a healthy digital life? Um, I heard an interesting interview recently with a call from a colleague who described um, Snapchat and Instagram and social uh, social media programs is not products but places where kids go and and conduct their social lives. And so, you taking away um, those places from them can be really hard. And and parents have to work really hard to help the kid understand what can and cannot happen there. And finally, I'll just say one thing that's really fun to hear. Um, advocates talk about or parent, you know, parent advocates talk about is create as much joy as you can in other parts of your child's life so that it's balanced. So we're not only relying on digital media for every social interaction, but we, we do that, but we also belong to this community, or this club, or we go outside and we play in the yard. We do different things so that there's balance because that's, that's, that's your, if you can accomplish that, then it, it, it would go a long way. It's very protective to do that. And also are there, um, I guess you're recommending some level of settings and controls for your kids as well when they're operating a computer in particular. Mm -hmm. and, yes, absolutely. And, I mean, you can take a lot of control over the device by setting controls, although we're hearing over and over again, it, it's really easy to kind of get around those that your children, as they get older, are very sophisticated users of these devices and can easily sort of change the settings when you're asleep or at work or not there. And this gets back to sort of that, that fundamental parenting advice around building an internal sense of control in the child, internal locus of control. The more they're empowered, the more they understand what it means to have a digital life and how to have a healthy digital life, the more they'll exert their own control over these, these choices they have ahead of them. And this is true around their health, right? Their emotional health. Like you, these are all things you're teaching them about as they're getting older. And digital media and dig, their digital life requires as much attention as those other parts of their life. And from, from what I'm hearing, uh, really having important conversations with your kids uh, is is the fundamental piece of advice that you can give, right? Ha have these conversations, they're important conversations to have uh, and make them be part of the process. Yeah, I also, that's absolutely right. And then I've heard great, um, you know, experts that we work with at the Institute give more specific advice, such as no phones at the dinner table, no, no phones at bed time, um, no phones after a certain time at night, sort of establishing a family rule 
that everybody follows, including the parents, um, so that you're modeling for them that you can put your phone away and have a dinner conversation, or you can put your phone away at nine o'clock at night and go to bed and wake up and it's still there and you can pick it up and look at it again. Um, you can co-view or, or um, you can ask for, or you can have access into your children's accounts so you can see who they're interacting with. Um, there are some predatory um, behaviors on these programs where people say they're 13, they're not, they're 30. Um, so you have to, you know, in some ways intrude, which I think makes lots of parents uncomfortable as teenagers, as kids get older. And yet at the same time, it's, it's helping to establish that boundary, right, that I'm talking about, where you, you're showing them that you're worried, you're concerned, and you want them to be also. Well, yeah, you, I agree completely. I mean, you and you've done spent a kind of a lifetime um, doing exactly what you're doing now, right? Trying to protect children. That's your, your you have an education. I want to say in psychology and social work, um, and you you know you've made that the focal point of your career, uh, trying to protect children and advocating for children. Um, so this, I think, is. Uh, is just one more step, right? Just another way that you're, you know, with the with the mm -hmm. pandemic, I think, uh, I think you're correct. I think so much of the world went to digital uh, that nobody really gave the thought to, you know, how that impacts development and children. So you're focusing your attention now on that after years of focusing it on many different areas where children needed uh, time and attention. Yeah, I mean, one um, kind of interesting comparison that uh, many years ago, I was in a role in California where it was, uh, we, we had to push back on tobacco because we, we there hadn't been a tax put in place and they weren't really being regulated that heavily. And so we, the voters passed a, a referendum and there was a tax and that tax went into a special fund for young kids because their development, we needed to enhance that. And we ended up going kind of head to head with big tobacco for years over that referendum. And they they fought back and said, you know, we don't want to be taxed. That's not fair. And the voters said it is fair. You're causing great harm. Um, there are health harms. There are, you know, there are societal harms. And so we're taxing you. Now, in this case, we have another industry that's not yet regulated. Um, is there, there does seem to be evidence that there is harm being caused. Um, there are some very sad cases of young people um, following TikTok challenges or being um, inundated with very depressing, difficult imagery and, and feeling suicidal or, or, or dying by suicide. And there are, there, there are connections back to what's going on on their social media accounts. And we feel that, you know, it's one thing for adults to choose to use products like tobacco. It's really a different thing when you're marketing to children and you're engaging them in a, in a, in a, in a product that they don't have all the skills and abilities to manage yet. Um, and so if the companies don't feel it's necessary to do this, then that's where society, government, advocates step in and say, we disagree. We think that they do need protection. And, and you're right. This is very familiar to me based on other work I've done. Um, and I, and, and the, 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 the pandemic really, to me, like laid bare just how big digital life has become and how unprotected children are as a result. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think it's it's important work that you're doing now. And again, I mean, there's a lot of science behind it. Uh, I'll be curious myself to see this new study that you're talking about come out. Yeah, um, it, it should be out. It, it might be out early next year. It, it might be just a few more months. And we're excited to see it too. And one of the researchers is an expert with the Institute at Yale. And um, we're, we're really looking forward to seeing what he's, what he's discovered. So I think that, uh, you know, I think that probably where you're working now, right, is the, uh, the kind of preeminent place to be when it comes to uh, the digital, you know, to children and screens. Obviously, children and screens is the name of the, of the not-for-profit, right? That this is where <laughs> a lot of stuff is, is happening uh, and you're making that kind of your work. Um, how can somebody, if they want to, learn more about children and screens or help? Thank you for asking. And we we are the interdisciplinary objective research institute that's focused on this issue. We have experts from every possible discipline, from um, pediatrics to psychiatry to psychology to neuroscience, linguists, um, we're really bringing people together to come up with answers to some of these tough questions. And you can support that work um, on our website, childrenscreens.com. We have a donate button. We would welcome any help at all, especially this time of year. Even the smallest contribution really helps us to offer up these important Ask the Experts webinars for parents or for me to join you on this podcast and talk about the science or to help our experts meet with parents directly. Um, so please, childrenscreens.com is a perfect place to go for all those resources and to donate. Uh, I highly recommend people check it out. It's a, it's a worthy cause. Uh, and parents who probably have had this concern on their own, right, even without hearing, you know, what you had to say or hearing a word of science, uh, have their own concern. I think parents who have one child who grew up less involved with digital media and then maybe have a younger child who mm -hmm. now post-pandemic has uh, been overwhelmed by digital media probably pick up differences on their own uh, without us telling them. Uh, but I do think that uh, for any parent who's ever had a concern about it, you know, this is a good place to start for resources and information uh, and to follow the research, right? It's important to know what's happening in the world and, and uh, what research is out there. Uh, I think, I mean, I've said this before on the podcast, I'm a cancer survivor. And uh, beforehand, I ate horribly, right? I mean, nutrition was not way up there for me. I'm an attorney, I bounced from courthouse to courthouse. I was always, you know, I always had some place I was driving off to, so I went through a lot of fast food, and I was unaware of all the research that was out there about nutrition and antioxidants and the ways we can help ourselves and our bodies optimize immunity uh, to prevent uh, cancer. And afterwards, you know, when I, I suddenly became open to learning that, you know, a cheeseburger and a milkshake weren't a good idea. Uh, and that I should be more interested in fruits and vegetables. Uh, yeah, I, I started doing that research. And then suddenly you find out, oh my goodness, like how is this, there's this huge vacuum of research that I just missed, right? That exists out there that tells us exactly how we can help ourselves. Uh, but, you know, you're kind of going through life like that, not, not looking to the right or left about it until you feel forced to. Um, so I guess in this regard, I'm saying don't feel forced 
to, uh, you know, we don't wait until something happens that to then go, is there stuff about this out there? Like, cause there is stuff about this out there right now. So I encourage people to check out your site and be educated uh, and, and, you know, use the resources as best they can to learn uh, how to help their children. Yeah, we translate the science into digestible parent-centric materials for that very reason. Parents have a lot on their plate. They are very busy. They are being pulled in a million directions. It's sometimes hard to wade through a journal article, but we do that for you. And then we provide these really sort of simpler tips, but you can also drill into the research and we do most of it through those webinars that are recorded and on our website on, on a myriad of topics, more than 55 topics. So please, if you have a few minutes, visit our website, visit those resources, and learn more about the impact of digital media on child development. And I'll put a link up, you know, with the video for sure to make it easy. Uh, I want to thank you, Chris, especially on this historic week for joining me. My pleasure. What a joy. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you for being here. And I'm going to sign off from the podcast and um, say have a great day, everyone. <laughs>